Section 3 of Harper's Young People, Volume 1, Issue 23, April 6, 1880. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Harvey. Harper's Young People, Volume 1, Issue 23, April 6, 1880. Begun in number 19 of Harper's Young People, March 9. Across the Ocean, or a Boy's First Voyage, a True Story by J. O. Davidson. Chapter 5. Frank and the Captain. Austin was still the center of an admiring group when a deep voice made itself heard from behind. Say, mates, you'd better let the lad get on some dry duds stead of fussing over him that way. Why, he's as wet as the lee scuppers. Frank recognized old Herrick, the quartermaster, who had roused him from his nap on the coil of rope the first night of the voyage. Come, youngster, hurry up and get a dry shirt on. What do you look so queer for? Hain't ye got nary one? Frank explained that his bag and bundle had disappeared somehow before they had been two days at sea. Stolen, I reckon, growled a sailor. But twarn't nobody on the forecastle has done it anyhow. It's been some of them blessed firemen, thieving wharf rats, every one. Eh, hey, they're the boys for hooking things, added another. Last voyage I made, there was a fireman we called Sandy, as I'd seen hanging around my sea chest just afore I missed something. So I fixed a fish hook to the lock, and next day Mr. Sandy had a precious sore finger somehow, from that day forward, we never called him nothing but Sandy Hook. A loud laugh from the rest applauded the joke. But I'll lend the young a shirt, willin'. And I. And I. Well, looky here, boys, said old Herrick. Let's give him poor Allen's chest and kit. He'll never need it more, poor fellow. And I've heard him say he'd nary relation ashore. Seems to me Frank's the one as ought to have it. What say ye all? All agreed, and the drowned man's chest was pulled out and rummaged. Out came caps, jackets, trousers, shirts, sea boots. Out came three or four letters and a photograph, which were laid aside to be handed over to the purser. And lastly, out came a small, well-thumbed Bible of old-fashioned look, which Herrick, after eyeing it thoughtfully for a moment, put into his own pocket. Oh, who'd a thought Alan kept a Bible? I have seen him spelling in it, though, once and again, but he always shed it up when anybody come nigh him. Well, well, torrented as brought him as ill luck, anyhow. Now, young'un, let's see how the duds fit you. But, as might have been expected, Everything was miles too big, and bagged about him in such a way as to make one of the men remark, with a grin, that, if he carried so much loose canvas, he'd founder in the first squall. We must take in a reef or two, then that's all, said Herrick. Bear a hand, my boy, 
and we'll soon turn you out shipshape. To work went the two amateur tailors, while Frank seized the chance of taking a good look at his new friend. The old tar was certainly well worth looking at, tall, broad-shouldered, active, with his brown, hard face framed in iron-gray hair and beard, pleasant twinkle in the keen blue eyes that looked out from beneath his bushy brows, and a kindly smile flickering over his rugged features ever and anon, like sunshine upon a bare moor. He looked the very model, one of those sturdy old sea-dogs who held their own against England's stoutest hearts of oak in the old days of seventy-six. As he worked on, making stitches which, though they would have horrified a fashionable tailor, were at least strong and durable, he began to pour forth a series of yarns, a tithe of which would set up any novelist for life. Fights with West Indian pirates, hairbreadth escapes from polar icebergs, picturesque cruises among the Spice Islands, weary days and nights in a calm off the African coast, on short allowance of water, with the burning sun melting the very pitch out of the seams, were reeled off in unbroken succession, while Frank listened, open-mouthed, and more than once forgot his tailoring altogether. But the stoke of a bell overhead broke in upon the talk. "'My watch on deck,' said the old man, springing up as nimbly as a boy. "'Now, lad, slip on them togs again.' Ay, now you look all a tonto. Frank was indeed improved. His shore clothes, which, with grease, coal dust, tar, salt water, and the rents made by the fight with Bunky, were, as the boatswain said, not fit for a spectacle scarecrow to wear of a Sunday, were exchanged for a blue flannel shirt and a pair of trim white canvas trousers. A neat black silk handkerchief was knotted around his neck and his battered stiff rim replaced by a jaunty sailor cap. Hello, youngster, the captain wants yer, shouted a sailor as Frank appeared on deck. You're in luck, my boy, said Herrick. Keep a stiff upper lip, but don't speak unless you're spoken to, then say as little as you can. On entering the captain's room, Frank found the latter busied in pricking out the ship's course on the chart, and was thus able to survey him at leisure. Captain Gray's plain black suit and standing collar, his grayish-brown hair, close-cut whiskers, and mild expression, made him look more like a preacher than like one who had led a forlorn hope over the ruins of Fort Sumter and had captured single-handed the ringleader of a dangerous mutiny in the West Indies. This mutiny, however, had occurred aboard another vessel, for nothing of the sort had ever been heard of on his own. The crew froze to him in all he did or said, and any sea lawyer who tried to breed a disturbance soon found the Arizona too hot for him. Talk about the officers as you like, was the constant saying on the forecastle, but nary word again the old deacon. For, strange to say, Captain Gray was a deacon when ashore, and not a few of his best hands were members of the old white church at home in Nantucket. His room was like himself, simple but perfectly orderly, 
a neat bed with snow-white coverlet and pillow, a little cupboard beside it, containing a pitcher and washbasin, a Bible in a neat wooden rack on a small table, a rifle, cutlass, and two revolvers, all bright and clean, hanging on the wall above it, a cabinet of books, mostly works of travel and navigation, several chairs, on one of which lay the captain's coat and cap, and a curtain along the wall, above which appeared various articles of clothing hung on pegs. Presently the captain looked up, and after figuring a moment on the slip of paper, touched a bell. Instantly a panel flew open, and a hoarse voice shouted, Aye, aye, sir. How's her head now, quartermaster? S.E. by S., sir. All right, keep her so. Aye, aye, sir. And the panel closed again. Then for the first time, Captain appeared to become aware of Frank's presence, and bending forward, fixed upon him a look that seemed to read his very soul. It was a proverb with the crew of the Arizona that no rogue could ever face the old man's eye, and although he was never known to utter an oath or unseemly word, his very glance had more effect than any amount of bluster and bullying. So you're the boy who oiled the outboard bearing today? I hear you've been fighting with Bunky. We won't say any more about that now, but don't let it happen again. Can you read and write? Yes, sir. Is this your handwriting on the ship's articles and in the storeroom account book? Yes, sir. Have you studied arithmetic? Well, then, work me out this example. Austin obeyed. Right, said the captain, glancing at the result. After this, Mr. Hurst, the chief engineer, will put you in the place of the oiler who was lost this morning. The $50 reward is in the purser's hands, where I advise you to leave it till you really need it. You may go now. Good night. What, couldn't they make you nothing better than a cattle oiler? Growled old Herrick, on hearing the result of the interview, for, like a true sailor of the old school, he abominated everything connected with that ear new-fangled steam. Sailor's what you're cut out for, and a sailor's what every man ought to be as can. How some dever, there's no fear but you'll get on well enough with the old man, for he's a good feller if ever there was one. We shipped together for our first voyage, him and me, when we were no bigger than you are, and if we ever part company again, twon't be my fault anyhow. To be continued. End of section three. Recording by Paul Harvey.